Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. It's your questions, our answers. No, it's not actually Ask the Guys today. It's Ask the Lenders. We've got a lot of great questions about loans today on the Real Estate Guys radio program. Hello, Real Estate Guys listeners. This is Ken Corsini with Georgia Residential Partners. I want to talk to you for a minute about a handful of properties that we are selling right now in Metro Atlanta for less than $30,000. That's right, these are houses that we bought and have already fixed and have placed tenants in these properties and we are now selling them for less than $30,000. These are properties that are not in the hood. They are not bad areas and we've got a very high demand for tenants in this location. And right now we are selling these things for less than $30,000. Most of these properties are getting between five and $600 in rent per month so your ROI is through the roof. On top of that, if you have interest, we would owner finance you on these deals as well. Call me today, 770-924-5450 or email me at ken at gainvesting.com. Welcome to the Real Estate Guys radio program. This week, broadcasting from beautiful Dallas, Texas. I'm Robert Helms. Uh, with me, as usual, Coast Financial Strategist, Russell Gray. Hey, Robert. And uh, just got done with our field trip to Dallas in the Dallas Metroplex. It's been amazing to uh, see this market re-engage in uh, vibrant, vibrant stuff. And uh, we just happened to have a couple of the guys that contributed to the field trip uh, in the lending world with us. If you've listened to the show for uh, a while, you're no stranger to these gentlemen. First of all, let's say hello to Graham Parham. How are you, Graham? I'm great. Thanks. Thanks, Robert. Thanks for being back on the show. Graham's a residential lender and also joining us, a commercial lender, Michael Becker. Hey, Robert. Good to have you guys on the trip this weekend. Thanks for sharing your expertise. Thanks for having us. Yeah, good stuff. So, you know, every eight to 10 weeks, we like you to ask the guys and we get lots of great questions that come in. And over the last few months, we've had these questions that have come in around loans and uh, Russell and I look at each other and said, well, we're, we're not current on loan topics and thought, well, let's ask the lenders. So today uh, we've got uh, your loan questions and these guys are going to answer. Here's the caveats. None of us are tax professionals and we don't don't give advice, we give ideas and information. Keep in mind when we talk about loans that lending standards and laws vary from state to state. These gentlemen are licensed in particular states, so we're going to talk in generalities. It doesn't mean that you can take information, and a lot of the questions have to do with a specific area. You're not going to be able to rely on that necessarily, but it'll give you some good ideas to then talk to your local uh, loan professional. So without uh, any further ado, here's our first question. It comes from Diana. She's in Miami. She says, I love your show. By the way, if you want to get your question on the air, a great way to start is with I love your show. So thank you, Diana. Uh, I'm a, a few episodes behind, but the topics you cover are always so relevant that it has truly helped me with my real estate ventures. I'm going through a dilemma. I purchased a one-bedroom, one-bathroom condo in Miami in 2012. The cash flow is great, but I can't seem to find a bank that will allow me to take any equity out. I owe $41,000 against the property, and it's valued at $110,000. Do you have any suggestions for me? It seems that the Florida condo market is still too volatile. All right, so here's a situation where a gal's got some equity in a property she bought two years ago. What say you? Well, I'm, first of all, I have a strong suspicion that it's probably in a non-warrantable condo. Uh, in today's world, uh, in the Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac world, they have a term of non-warrantable or warrantable, and it really boils down to the occupancy level within that project. If there's 100 units in there and there's uh, 60 of the units that are owner-occupied and one individual does not own more than 10% of the project, then it's considered warrantable. Uh, sometimes price points at 100000 uh being a lot of investors probably have already jumped into this equation many times over. You're probably heavily involved with a lot of investors where they may have you know, 20 25% owner-occupancy. Being that it goes into a non-warrantable category, well, then Fannie Freddie basically steps out of the picture at that point, and now you're back to either portfolio lending or some type of private money. Even the banks, if he, she tried to do a second lien on that just to get like a HELOC, that's almost her best way to go about it. Second liens are typically a bank product. They're not usually for the traditional first lien lenders, your Fannie Freddie lenders, but banks do uh, dish those out. But once again, she's in a, in a difficult market being Florida, and chances are when the, when the market turned back on in 08, they uh, probably pulled the plug on a lot of the HELOCs that were outstanding out there. And, you know, it's very difficult to get them, especially on non-owner-occupied. Owner-occupied is still difficult. They're obtainable, but on, on non-owner-occupied, they're still very, very difficult to get. It's such a great point. One of the 
key questions to ask when you're buying any condominium is, well, not something to question to ask. It's information to find out. Is it a warrantable condominium complex? And many today aren't, especially the better buys, right? right? You see investors go in and they're buying stuff at pennies in the dollar and yeah, cash flows are great. And that's fine. If you want to buy a property that's worth 110 and you can buy it for, maybe she bought it for 60 and the loan's now 41, that works all day long. The challenge is don't expect to be able to pull the money out. That's true. That's correct. My first property that I bought, sight unseen, was a condominium. I paid $29,000 for it. I don't even recall. Oh, I do recall. I, I went through a portfolio lender in the day, which didn't have a problem you know, dealing with the non-warrantable issues because they didn't have to sell their loans to Fannie or Freddie and turn around, sold it in a year and made some money. But that's my experience at a condo. I do currently own a condo now that it's probably 300 units in there. The Homeowners Association bylaws actually will state that they don't want more, more than one entity owning more than 10%, which kind of helps a lot of people buy and sell in the project, but you're still at about 38 39% owner occupancy, which once again kicks out Fannie and Freddie. Now, Graham, what about a situation, and we see this come up today, and it's beyond Diana's question, but you see a lot of these condominium complexes that were challenged or they were built and there weren't buyers and they went to foreclosure and now people have stepped up and bought them, but you've got HOAs with tremendous arrears and the, half the people are paying the dues. How does the lender look at that part of it? Even though it was warrantable, if there were 60% owner-occupants, but there's challenges with the AOA's finances, how, do, how does the lender look at that? Well, first of all, they're going to make sure there's no litigation going on. Nobody's suing anybody. A, a vendor may be suing the HOA or vice versa. They want to make sure that there's, like I say, no litigation. They also take a look at their cash reserves. That's very, very important. And if they're, like you say, in arrears quite a bit, that could bust the deal. All right, good stuff. Well, there you go, Diana. Let's go to our next question, which comes from Yahan in New Orleans, Louisiana, and it's about HELOCs. He says, hey, guys, I've been continually frustrating trying to get a home equity line of credit from my house. I have about $400,000 in equity and I'd like to purchase more real estate. I do have some lender resources, but feel more comfortable doing the transaction with some people of my choice and having a tax deductible interest rate that is much lower than a hard money loan. Any suggestions as I keep getting denied due to self-employment and now with many credit inquiries, my scores have gone down. It's certainly a catch-22. All right, uh, so this is a situation where he's trying to get a HELOC. Let's talk about home equity lines of credit. That was a great tool in the day. They went almost virtually away and, and now they're back. Uh, how do HELOCs work today, Graham? I personally have one and I highly encourage anybody that has any kind of equity in their home, regardless of what they want to use it for, is just to have it there as a safeguard. It's like a checkbook. Just pull it out, write a check, and, and it goes against you know any kind of an interest time clock that 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 ticks away. But a lot of the HELOCs are, are really a bank product. Your larger banks, your Wells Fargo's, your Chases, BBVA. I mean, when I walked into a BBVA Compass, the application took 15 minutes. They approved me on the spot, and off I went. And sometimes it's that easy. Sometimes it's not. Chances are he's probably going through like a Wells Fargo or other big banks that has a full-blown underwrite to it. And since he's self-employed, chances are he whittles his taxes down too low where they're not going to prove him because, the, you know, the qualifying ratios are a little too high. Yeah, that's a good point. For anyone who's self-employed, I mean, part of your mission as a self-employed business person is to keep your expenses down and make sure you're not too profitable and so forth. But you got to think through about how that's going to look when you come to get a loan. I would highly encourage him if he wants to for me to take a look at his tax returns just to see how bloody it is it could be better than we think but then again it could be he could be pretty close to not making anything just depending on how much he writes off each year so let's talk about uh, a heloc uh, just in terms of the way it works typically you are only paying interest if you draw down against it but how does it affect your qualification does it count as though you had that loan amount yes. out good example is uh, a lot of people will utilize their helocs to go buy an investment property Let's say they had a $100,000 HELOC and they would need, say, $30,000. So they'll go stroke a check and they'll put it into their regular checking account. And then what we'll require them to do is go back to the HELOC servicer and ask them for the new balance and the new payment. And we just count that into their ratios. It's very simple. If his income is strong, then it's really not a problem whatsoever. We just need, once again, just need to see the uh, whatever kind of payment balance it's going to have on there and whatever kind of P&I payment that that's required. And the great thing about HELOCs is a lot of times you only pay the interest. You don't pay the principal. And the rates are ridiculous. I mean, it could be prime plus a half. You know, it could be very, very low. So they're, they're very attractive products right now. 
All right, good stuff. I think, uh, obviously, if your credit picture looks anything other than W-2, you want to meet with your loan professional and just see how that looks and what does it take to get in place. So rather than jump around from lender to lender to lender, obviously, Graham's offered to take a look. Before we're done, we'll be uh, giving you guys contact information for both these guys in case you have specific situations. But we're trying to uh, really focus on the on the big picture, and obviously, HELOC's a great tool. All right, good stuff. Hey, if you have a question for the Real Estate Guys, go to the website at realestateguysradio.com and click on the button that says Ask the Guys. Today, it's Ask the Lenders. More questions for these guys when we come back. You're tuned to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Elms. Live nationwide, you're listening to the Real Estate Guys. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com. Are you achieving everything you want in life? What if there was a time-tested way for you to get everything you've dreamed of? The most successful people in life set goals and keep themselves accountable. But how? The good news is that it's not rocket science. You too can learn the skills and unleash the motivation that will create success in your life. And now is the time. Hi, this is Robert Helms, and I'd like to personally invite you to attend Creating Your Future, the 2016 Goals Retreat, taking place January 8th through 10th in beautiful San Diego, California. This unique weekend has been called phenomenal, inspirational, and life-changing by the hundreds of people that have attended. Find out more at realestateguysradio.com and click events or call 888-489-7723, extension 18. Get your life back on track physically, spiritually, and financially. Attend the 2016 Goals Retreat on the second weekend of the new year. Click events at realestateguysradio.com and register why there's still early bird pricing. This is no dress rehearsal. Live the life you were meant to. Visit realestateguysradio.com or call 888-489-7723 today. Hi, I'm Robert Kiyosaki, and I encourage you to listen to those wild and crazy real estate guys. They're the best. They're working for years, and they know what they're talking about. Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program this week from Dallas, Texas, high above the city, in fact, in the CBS building here in downtown. And we're looking at the lenders' questions that you guys have submitted. You've got lots of great questions about loans. Our next question comes from Mark in Peoria, Illinois. Hey, guys, after years of learning and saving, I recently got in the game buying two rental homes. Thanks for all the education and encouragement over the last seven years. Wow, it's been listening a while. I'm getting about one percentage point higher on my 30-year mortgage rate on rentals than I would on my own home. What can I do for rental home number three to get closer to regular mortgage rates for a 30-year loan? Or are they always going to be 1% higher? Well, let's take this from both sides. Let's take this from you're laughing. Move into it. <laughs> I mean, buy it as owner-occupied. Well, let's ask the lenders. So uh, let's look at both the uh, residential and commercial. Obviously, single-family houses. Uh, Graham, uh, what about interest rates and investment homes? And you work with a lot of investors. So what, uh, what say you here? Well, if you have uh, exemplary credit, and when I say exemplary, we say 740 or higher, uh, you're going to get the best rate possible. But there's always going to be a, a rate differential from the single-family primary residence to a single-family investment property. It typically is anywhere between three-eighths to a half a point. So you're automatically going to have that delta difference. But if it, chances are, you know, if you're getting a point difference, then there may be some problems with your credit, which is drawing that, that rate even higher. Because the way Fannie Mae uh, really adjusted these rate adders back in 03, once you start getting down below, say, 660, they tear you up on the rate. They really do. So that's probably what's happening here. All right. Good stuff. I, I think the principle that everybody needs to just understand is that interest rates on loans are basically risk premium for the lender. And so anything that adds risk to the loan is going to add price to your borrowing costs. So in this case, because you're not living in it, it's not owner-occupied, the feeling from the lender's perspective is that you're going to be less loyal to it than you would be if it was the roof over your own head. If you have a great credit score, as Graham's talking about, then that demonstrates that no matter what your obligations are, that you are great at handling credit, and that takes some of the risk off. You know, it's not an unusual thing, uh, especially because I know that you're a new investor, when you start going out and shopping for loans to find that rental properties property loans are more expensive, that, you know, obviously lower credit scores are more expensive. Uh, sometimes properties in certain areas or certain types of properties are more expensive. It's just 100% about the risk. And then, Graham, maybe you can comment a little bit on the things that investors can do to try to take some of the risk 
off to understand from the lender's perspective why they're getting priced up and then what they can do to try to put their credit profile together in such a way or the property profile together in such a way that they can get the price lowered a little bit. Well, it sounds like my gut feel on this particular individual that he may be dealing with some credit issues. And I'm not a credit uh, expert. Uh, uh, There's better guys in the marketplace that understand this. That's their business. But uh, some of the credit guys are actually pretty good, and they can help improve, uh, you know, your credit score, which is really the true toll tale when it comes down to pricing. All right, good stuff. Now, I will say, you know, we don't normally don't give advice, but I, I do have some advice for you, Mark, when it comes to the fact that loans on investment property are higher. Get over it. Deal with it. That's how it is. And that's just how it is. And what you do is you do the math and the math will tell you what to do. You run your numbers and everybody wants the lowest rate. I'll tell you what, spending some time with the godfather of real estate, right? He's been investing in seven different decades. He thinks that anytime your loan rate has a single digit, it's a great loan. Because in his perspective, many, many times over his career, loan rates were 10%, 12%, 18%. So you do want to get the lowest rate possible. But I'll tell you what, if one point makes the difference on a deal, you're in the wrong deal. So, Michael, let's talk about the commercial side of things because rates aren't exactly the same in commercial property. If you are looking at an apartment building, chances are the loan might actually be at a much lower rate. Sure, yeah. You can certainly take uh, variable rate options or fixed rate options. Uh, most of the commercial loans, uh, virtually all of them, have a call option. They're not 30-year fixed rate loans. You typically are going to have a 5, 7, 10-year structure uh, well, you know, on a 25 or 30-year amortization. They certainly have a call option at the end of that. And if you really want to take it, you can do a, like a LIBOR or a prime plus a spread-based loan and have, you know, certainly a much lower rate. You know, a lot of these people in my experience get into these single family homes on 30 year fixed rates and they think it's great and it is great, but I don't know how many times people own a house for 30 years. Usually once you're into these deals for a while, it makes sense to sell the property after several years and kind of move on to something bigger and better. All right. Well, while we're on the subject, here's another great question. This is from Jorge in San Juan, Puerto Rico. He says, when does an adjustable rate mortgage make more sense? than a fixed rate mortgage. So since we're talking about commercial property, a lot of the products out there are, as you say, not fully amortized or not for the full period of the loan. What do you, what do you say about fixed versus a variable rate loan? Sure. When I'm, when I'm looking at a situation, I always kind of look at, well, what's our anticipated exit strategy? Are we going to be in this deal for 30 years? If you're a hundred percent confident you want to be in this deal for the long term, you know, I would be more apt to take a long term fixed rate loan. If this is going to be a deal you're going to get in and get out in a year or Two, I might be more opt to go to the uh, to the adjustable rate loan, and especially on the um, commercial side. When you go out for these 10-year fixed rates, more times than not, they're going to carry these big, large prepayment penalties. And so if you're going to be in and out of this deal, it just becomes financially you're financially disincentivized to take a fixed rate loan with a big prepayment penalty when you can do these adjustable rate loans with either a flexible or no prepayment penalty. So I always kind of start with the end of mind and work your way backwards a little bit. Right. It's hard to have a crystal ball, and you can look at where interest rates are and where you think they might be going, and that's typically in a market how you would decide between fixed and variable. And then the other thing, of course, is what's your exit strategy? I mean, we saw some apartment complexes uh, this weekend where, in fact, you showed us one where you guys went in and it needed a lot of work, a lot of TLC. You fixed it up beautifully, and now it's in great shape. How would you structure a loan in that case? Is it acquire the loan for a short period of time, fix it up, and then refinance? Or is it the same loan product that allows you to do both? I'll give you the answer. Yes to both, right? So you could could certainly go in and do a bridge loan, do a a adjustable rate loan, have it be a two, three, four, five-year loan, a short-term loan, then pay it off when you either you know, go in and refinance into a permanent loan or sell it to the next guy and he puts a permanent loan on it. What we ended up doing on the property we showed you was we took a 10-year fixed rate Fannie Mae loan. We got one year's worth of interest only, then it's a 30-year amortization. But the unique to the Fannie Mae product on the uh, multifamily side is they allow what is called a supplemental loan. So what it allows us to do is to go in, fix it up, raise the rents, and by extension, raise the net operating income and increase the value. And then they'll allow us a mechanism to give us a second lien note and cash out some of that equity without actually having to pay off the first lien loan. And that's a pretty unique product to the Fannie Mae. You don't see that in a lot of the commercial loans. That's a Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac type product. 
All right. Now, Graham, when you work with somebody, and I know you do a lot of single-family homes for investors, but certainly homeowners as well, how do you counsel them about this question? Do I go fixed? Do I go adjustable? In most cases, I really don't even talk about the arms. If they bring it up, we'll certainly address it. Uh, the arms have actually come back uh, very nice in the last couple of years where after the 08 bust, uh, they were almost neck and neck, almost on top of each other to the point where sometimes they're even upside down. Right. The margins have adjusted themselves where the arms have come back. And I think you said it yourself, you know, if they have a, an exit strategy and it's within a five-year plan, sure, absolutely take a look at a five-year arm. But some people think, you know, only thing we got to concern ourselves is with rate. Well, you know, there's going to be a risk at the end of the, uh, the five-year period, and that's something they have to understand. And a lot of times I don't think they do. It's Ask the Lenders Today, your questions about loans and our lenders' uh, answers. This one comes from Joel, who is from Finland. He says, uh, listeners all over the world, it's amazing. I've uh, listened to way too many of your shows, but can't get enough. Yes, Robert, I am now trying to get a life. All right, excellent. Uh, I'm an expat and have lived in Finland for the past several years. I've always been intrigued by real estate and have gotten involved enough to get an expensive education when the downturn hit. I want to get into the game again, so I found a couple of Finnish guys who are doing the thing in the States, but with straight cash, right? They're from Finland. They're using all cash. The challenge is getting financing. I'd like to help. They say that because they do not have permanent residence or social security number, they cannot get financing. I have a social security number, but does this help since I don't have income in the U.S.? What other options would there be? All right. Well, this is a great question, and I think let's start with the commercial side. Michael, what what does it matter where the person is from? Is that going to be a, a factor? One of the big things I guess we should talk about is for residential lending, what Graham does, typically the borrower is the most important. The borrower is what we're looking at in terms of the durability of their income, their credit, all of that. And then, of course, an appraisal on the property, make sure the property is a decent property. On commercial, in your world, Michael, it's a lot more about the property and certainly the sponsor, the, the buyer is important, but it's more about the property. So what's the case about someone who doesn't live in the U.S. that wants to buy in the U.S.? Sure. It certainly does create a certain level of headwinds when you're not in the U.S., but do people from uh, foreign countries get loans on U.S. properties? Uh, yes, they do. That happens pretty frequently. Uh, some of the things the lenders will do, they certainly will look at it a little bit harder. They might tighten down a little bit on the leverage instead of getting say an 80% loan, you might be looking at closer to 65 or 60% leverage. And they certainly want to dig in a little bit deeper. Uh, you you being a, uh, a U.S. citizen with a social security number does help. But with that said, I mean, they're really going to look at well, where, where, how are you going to run the property? How are you going to manage it? You're being across the country. So, you know, having good management team in place locally, having enough down payment and really kind of working through it, it certainly should be something that, that would be attainable with a commercial loan on a, on a bigger, you know, apartment complex or office building, something like that. All right. So possible to do. Graham, what about the residential side? I'm living in Finland. I want to buy some houses in the U.S. and I don't want to use all cash. Well, you said it yourself. Actually, Russ, you said it earlier earlier about the layers of risk. Uh, you know, everything has a layers of risk. And if you don't live here in the States and you're not legally uh, have a residence here, even though you're from another country, that creates another layer of risk. In the QM or the Fannie and Freddie world, there's really the pro there's no products out there to address this. If there are, they're mainly on an owner-occupied transaction, but those are few and far between. Now, some of the larger uh, banks and institutions, mainly the some of the private investing institutions, are looking at non QM loans that on a portfolio basis they'll do it. We currently have a product now, it's a foreign national product that will actually address owner-occupied and second home. We're trying to work with the investor now to see if they'll take on uh, the investment piece. And if so, this going to open up a lot of doors. There are some people out there doing uh, foreign nationals for investment properties, but once again, they're very few and far between. And, of course, the loan rates are higher, the points are higher, and the LTV is lower. Correct. Exactly. Exactly. All right, so don't give up. I think uh, you're on the right track to look at places you can invest. And, you know, it's not, I mean, we're here with two lenders, but it's not always terrible to buy a property for cash. If it performs, if the return makes sense to cash, that's the least possible return you're going to get. You add leverage to it. And there may be ways to add, add leverage as these programs change. So I wouldn't give up on real estate because you can't do it. But again, I think the theme is, uh, is just exactly what Russ said. The more risk the lender is taking or perceives, the harder the loan's going to be to get. Well, I do think one thing that's important because, you know, Graham, these guys just live in a world that I used to live in. And so I understand, you know, some of the terminology, I understand the basic concepts and just uh, kind of in our 
whole theme at the Real Estate Guys of No Investor Left Behind. You know, he talks about QM. That's a qualified mortgage. That means it's qualified or eligible. It's what we used to call conforming loans. It fits into the Fannie Freddie guidelines. And that begs the question, who the heck is Fannie and Freddie and what are they doing in the marketplace? And they're obviously on the commercial side. They're on the residential one to four side. So Fannie and Freddie are these quasi, used to be quasi-government. I guess you could probably consider them full-blown government today, but the GSE government-sponsored enterprises, and they exist basically to subsidize loans made for housing. And so you can imagine that they're not in the business of creating money so that investors necessarily can get rich and certainly not so foreigners can come in and buy U.S. real estate. That's not their charter. They're here to help people buy homes, and they're also in the apartment space here to help people be able to build affordable housing and that's what they exist for so everything they do is really focused on trying to make that happen with that said the rest of the lending community all has to pivot off of what Fannie and Freddie do because effectively they have to compete with these government subsidized programs and so even though they may not necessarily be trying to sell their loans to Fannie or Freddie they still need to be competitive in the marketplace and then they have to find some nuances they have to find ways to do things that Fannie and Freddie won't do but they also have to use price Pricing that's real-world pricing because they don't get a government subsidy. There's no implied government guarantee. They have to write better business. And because of that, it costs a little bit more. And so when you kind of understand that, then all of a sudden these things, when you move into this world, they don't catch you off guard. It's like, I don't understand how come a regular mortgage costs this and, you know, an investor mortgage costs that. The other thing that Graham mentioned is he used the term investor. And one of the things when I first got it started, I got confused all the time because to me, the investor was the person buying the property. Right. In Graham's world, the person who is the investor is the person buying the loan. In other words, they're the lender. And so Graham is going to originate the loan through his company and then he's going to turn around and sell it to somebody who wants to own that note and receive the the production of income from that note. That's his investor. Investors who are trying to get their money placed in an environment that is becoming more competitive, they're looking to try to find ways to attract those borrowers. And so you can tell if you're like me and you track what's going on in the financial markets, you can see there's more and more money looking for a home. And because of that, lenders are becoming more and more creative. Um, in terms of helping you. So it's a very exciting time. It's why we wanted to do the show because it's been a long time since I've been in the lending game personally and it's changed a lot and it's just fun being here with the guys and kind of getting caught up. But the context of the way these enterprises fit in and how they affect the whole marketplace, that's basically still the same. It's a special edition of Ask the Guys. It's Ask the Lenders today on the Real Estate Guys. When we come back, it's our time to play Real Estate Trivia. Your chance to win a prize next. You tune to the Real Estate Guys radio program. I'm your host, Robert Helm. Real estate investment advice right in your mailbox. Sign up for the free Real Estate Guys newsletter at realestateguysradio.com. Hi, this is Patrick Donahoe of Paradigm Life. Over the last few years, I've had the privilege of sharing the services of Paradigm Life with you loyal Real Estate Guys Radio listeners through our website, www.beerbank.com, and also on the annual Investor Summit at Sea. Subsequently, we have seen a variety of financial situations across the socioeconomic spectrum and how everyone, regardless of their situation, would improve their financial lives by following the system we specialize in. As a result of this experience, we have created an online e-learning system so anyone without obligation can learn about the infinite banking concept. This free e-learning program is found on our website, www.beerbank.com. So check it out today. The website again is www.beerbank.com. If you love real estate and have always wanted to own your own business, listen up. The Real Estate Guys and their panel of experts want to teach you how to go full-time fast in the real estate syndication business. These next few years may go down in history as one of the best times ever to acquire investment real estate. There are deals everywhere if you know where to look and how to assemble the resources. The Secrets of Successful Syndication Seminar will show you how to make big money doing big deals from a team of experts that have syndicated projects totaling more than $1 billion. Don't wait for someone to give you a raise 
days or create a job for you. Attend the secrets of successful syndication and learn how to build a team, raise capital, find deals, and make full-time money in six months or less. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. All the big players use syndication as a way to diversify risk, optimize profits, and earn big money. You can too. Go to realestateguysradio.com and click on events. Hi, this is Lawrence, your Chief Economist with National Association of Realtors, and you are listening to The Real Estate Guys. Welcome back to The Real Estate Guys radio program and our more downloaded podcast on real estate investing. If you have a question for The Real Estate Guys, go to our website at realestateguysradio.com and click on Ask the Guys. We've got a bunch of questions this week that are about loans, and so we've got the Grant Parham, a residential lender with us, and Michael Becker, a commercial lender, answering your lender questions. We'll get back to that in a minute, but first, it's time to play Real Estate Trivia, your chance to win a prize by knowing today's Real Estate trivia question. As soon as you hear the question and think you know the answer, send it to us to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. Trivia at realestateguysradio.com. The first person with the right answer is going to win a copy of My Next Step. Great book by Remax co-founder Dave Leniger. That could be yours if you know our trivia question for this week. Last week on the show, we were talking about the geographic shifts happening and we had uh, Tim Stermos on the program. And uh, here is our question. The capital city of China is Beijing. But it's not the most populated city. What city in China has the greatest population? Well, the answer is it's actually the city with the greatest population in the world, Shanghai. More than 23 million people live in Shanghai in China. And uh, there you go. Here's our real estate trivia question for this week. Where are Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac headquartered? We're talking about Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Where are they headquartered? And your hint is it's not the same place. People think, well, they must be, of course, headquartered in fill in the blank, but they're not. Where are they headquartered? If you know, great. If not, quickly make your best guess or do your fastest research. Get your question to trivia at realestateguysradio.com. And uh, you might want a copy of My Next Step from Remax co-founder Dave Leniger. That's today's real estate trivia question. It's Ask the Lenders. Our next question comes from David in Staten Island, New York. He says, hello, I found one of your books on Audible, Real Equity. I've never heard of you before that. I really enjoyed the book. I believe in many of your ideas. I'd like to know which lenders today will lend 80% LTV on commercial, multifamily, etc. I'm not sure when the book was written. Well, the reference there is we use some examples in the book of an 80% LTV on a commercial property. And of course, that hasn't always been the case. It may not always be the case. But today, in June of 2015, Michael Becker, what uh, what LTVs are you looking at in commercial property? Sure. Most of the LTVs range uh, anywhere from 75 to 80% loan to, loan to cost. And uh, they'll even allow you to roll in some renovation and some closing costs. So typically, the calculation would be purchase price plus rehab plus, you know, generally up to 3% closing costs times either 75 or 80%. So that's, uh, that's still applicable in this world. Uh, one of the, in the apartment business, the largest lender is Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Uh, Freddie Mac generally focuses on the more trophy type assets, the larger dollar amounts. And Fannie Mae will do a little bit lower, you know, more C class, a little bit smaller loans. Um, you know, still looking for good quality assets, but they'll do the little smaller loans that, that probably most people listening to the radio show would, would be interested in. And they'll, they'll do 80%. They'll do 10 year, 10 and 12 year fixed rate loans, 30 year amortizations. And they even do them non recourse, which is, uh, which is out there and available on the uh, commercial property side. Uh, you're typically closer to 70 or 75% loans. You can get life company, life insurance loans, or CMBS, commercial mortgage-backed security loans. Those typically top out around 70 to 75% loan leverage. Let's talk for a minute about uh, non-recourse since you brought that up. Obviously, when you uh, borrow money to buy a house, the recourse is going to be against the house and you as the borrower. But as you get further in your real estate investing and you're buying larger buildings, commercial buildings, retail, malls, and you know multifamily, you can get some of these loans that are non-recourse. What does that really mean, Michael? Basically, what it means is that it is, like you mentioned, it's recourse to the property. You don't make your payments. They have the right to go in and foreclose on the property, but they, they do not have a, a claim to your balance sheet. So as long as you're on the property ethically, they will make you sign what is commonly referred to as a bad boy card about if you google it you can figure it out but essentially what it means is as long as you don't misrepresent anything or commit fraud they don't have a claim to uh to the to your personal balance sheet so they can't see you to collect for any sort of deficiency if they in an event of a foreclosure 
So you're saying that I can't buy an apartment building, collect all the rents, put it in my savings account, and then give them back the building? Yes, I'm saying that. That yes. would be bad. <laughs> that would make you a bad boy. So that's no no good. Now, uh, since we're talking about LTV, Graham, historically, we've seen times when it's taken 20% down to buy a single-family house, and those are pretty stable times. Things got crazy in, right, 2000, 2003. 2004. There were all kinds of crazy loans. The thing blew up. We were back to 20% down, which is probably fairly prudent. Today, are there other loans available for less than 20% down? Yes. Actually, Fannie Mae does allow it to go up to 85% loan to value. The problem is anytime you exceed an 80% loan to value, then you have to find private mortgage insurance to back that gap. There are a couple of private mortgage insurance companies out there doing the 85% loan. But when you put the numbers to it and you do a a comparable, there's really hardly any benefit whatsoever because that that MI on on an investment property is a lot higher on the MI on on a uh, primary residence. So it's almost a break-even. All right. So generally uh, speaking, as you're looking at uh, your numbers and your strategies, 20% down is probably a good way to go. Exactly. Exactly. Our next question comes from Gail in Belton, Texas. So uh, right here in the great state of Texas, she says, it's time to do some major remodeling of our 1970-era home. We want to redo an elevated concrete porch with added roof and kitchen. Those are the big parts. We're working with an architect for plans that we can use to shop for a construction company. Our home is mortgage-free. Until we receive bids, I don't have a good estimate of the cost, but we know we may need to proceed in stages if the cost is too high. I want to get financing arranged, but all the guidance I've read says that you need to start with a good cost estimate. Can you offer advice about financing options to consider and any other steps I need to take now? We have VA eligibility, but I'm not sure that it applies to remodeling. Our FICO is a few points short of 700, but improving. All right, so free and clear house. They want to do some remodeling. Can they borrow money to do that, Graham? Yes. The uh, Texas cash out, which we refer to as the A6 cash out product, it looks and smells and acts just like a 30-year fixed rate. It's just that the, the paperwork's a little bit different. You have to sign a 12-day disclosure form, which is by the uh, laws of Texas, which means you got to think about what you're doing for 12 days. In most cases, I mean, it takes 12 days to conclude the loan transaction, so it's really not a big deal. But in her case, if she gets like a HELOC, which a lot of times if she wants to do this in stages, maybe to her advantage. And she can do the HELOC, and, and once she completes the construction, after a certain period of time, she can come back and refinance the HELOC out into another fixed-rate loan uh, closing. But for the ease of her staging, so to speak, because if she did a, a straight HELOC loan, it's one price, one loan. She has to take all the money at once. Okay. I don't know if she wants to do that. Okay, That's always an option. She can put the, the, the bulk of that money in the, in the bank and then still do her staging, and then she wouldn't have to come back and refinance it. But the HELOC... HELOC is always a very attractive product. Once again, the rates are very, uh, they're down and dirty, considering a regular fixed rate mortgage. And plus, it's a lot easier to use. All right, good stuff. Our next question is about a HELOC as well. This comes from Robert in Albany, New York. He says, uh, greetings, guys. First of all, I have to say thank you. I began investing in real estate this past year, and your podcast and book have been instrumental in my progress so far. All right. Uh, my question is regarding the best use of my home equity line of credit. I have access to a $100,000 HELOC with a 3.9% interest rate that I plan on using to jumpstart my investing. I recently completed a flip and hold project of a two-family in my home market using the HELOC. The good news is that after I cash out refinance, I will be able to recover most of the initial investment. The bad news is I'm discovering my home market is not ideal for the buy and hold investment strategy that I'd like to employ. The high tax rate in New York State, I pay $8,000 annually in property taxes for a house assessed at about $180,000, makes the cash flow pretty tight. I'd like to branch out to out-of-state markets. I have good credit and access to the equity in my home. I'm a bit confused about what the best way to utilize these resources is. Small down payments on multiple single-family residences, $100,000 down payment on a large apartment building. Also, is it better to focus on markets that can provide better cash flow or appreciation when using 100% leverage? Any insight you have would be greatly appreciated. All right, so that's an interesting question. He's got a HELOC. He's done some real estate already and is wondering what is the best way to take advantage in another state. And let's talk about what qualification looks like when you borrow from out of state as well. Well, we don't penalize individuals since they live out of state. I think the best thing he needs to to do is determine where he needs to buy. 
And quite frankly, I'm biased. I live here in Dallas, and I think this is one of the best rental markets in the country. And if that's the case, you know, come to Dallas, put your 20% down, use your HELOC, get the kind of cash flows you're looking at. And, you know, to me, that's your ideal situation. He's trying to make a situation work in his own backyard that the numbers just may not be favorable. Yeah, good point. I always say live where you want to live and invest where the numbers make sense. And if your numbers aren't working where you are, it's a big world, right? And some people aren't comfortable in uh, investing out of state, but more and more today with the right team, you can certainly do that. So in this case, he has a HELOC. If he uses those funds from his HELOC, which are borrowed funds, right. and he comes to you and says, I want to get a loan for the rest, how does the lender look at that? Well, it's his money. Even though it's tied up in, quote, equity at this point, and he's got this line of credit against that equity, it's still his money, and we view it as his money. So if he wants to stroke a check for a 20% down house and put it in his bank account, it's his money. So we recognize that he has enough money to do the transaction. But it does change his ratios. It does change his ratios. What we'll do is we'll take a look at the balance sheet or the ending balance once he's deducted the money from the HELOC and to also take a look at the uh, the payment and then add that against his ratios. And if he's, the ratios are still aligned, then he's fine. So let's talk about ratios just to make sure everyone's on the same page. Lenders are going to look at historically the ability of borrowers to pay back the loan, right? They're interested in two things. Number one, how are you going to pay us back? Number two, what happens if you don't? So the how are you going to pay us back part, they're going to look at the income you have and then quote unquote, allow you to spend a percentage of that on your housing. And so when we talk about ratios, we normally talk about two ratios, two numbers. Explain those two numbers, Graham. One's considered the front-end ratio, and the other one is the back-end ratio. It's all simple math. You take whatever the gross monthly income is and divide in how much your housing debt's going to be. That's your first ratio. And the second ratio is taking those same numbers, but also adding on any personal debt that you may have, another house if you have one, car loans, student loans, credit cards, and that affects your back-end ratio. And that's really the most important one. And as you said it before, you know, we live in this world of the ability to repay, which is very, very, it's a major point in today's world. And a lot of the banks will stop at a quote 43, which has been dictated by the Dodd-Frank. Other lenders have a tendency to go a little bit higher as long as they get an underwritten approval through the, the Fannie Mae or the Freddie Mac underwriting engine. Typically, they don't usually like to go any more than, say, oh, 48 to 50%. So we're talking about 43 to 50% of your income to spend on all of your debt obligations. Correct. So that's the bad news, meaning that they pay a lot more attention. It's not just like stated income and Correct. that kind of stuff. So they're actually going to verify. They're going to want to see all the statements. They're going to want to look at your credit report. And they're going to want to know what your total debt is. Obviously, they're going to know what your, your uh, proposed subject property debt's going to be. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. The good news is you can do things strategically on your financial statements to change your ratios. For example, let's say you have a car loan. And your car loan's got a $300 a month payment, but the car loan is only $20,000. You could take $20,000 of available cash, pay that loan completely off, then you eliminate the $300, and you can change your ratios with just a small amount of cash. And a lot of times, that can be a better way to move the money around to manipulate your, your ratios. So here's the point. When you're getting ready to go do a deal, everybody gets excited. I'm speaking like, you know, the ex-mortgage guy that I am, right? So everybody gets all excited about the real estate. And they run out there and they want to go do the real estate. Let's go look at houses, honey. Let's go look at rental properties. Let's go on a bus tour and go look at all this great stuff. And that's fun. The challenge is the first thing you really ought to do way before you begin the process is you get together with your mortgage coach, your mortgage professional, your mortgage consultant, and you show them your credit profile. You show them your credit. You show them your income. You show them your balance sheet. You say, what can I qualify to buy based on what I have? We call that a borrowing power analysis. Then what can I do to improve it? And then you begin working it so that way ahead of going out looking for property, you're getting all of your financing in line. Now, once you've built that kind of relationship with a guy like Graham, then what's happening is as new products are coming, because new products are coming out all the time now and underwriting guidelines are changing, he knows what you're trying to do, he knows where you're at, and he's telling you, hey, this new program, you're ready to go, or you just tweak this or tweak that, and you, you'll you be able to do the thing that you want to do maybe two, three months sooner than you thought. You know, Russ, that's a good point. The mortgage banker, whether it's Graham, myself, a commercial mortgage banker, residential mortgage banker, we're on your team. We're part of your, you're a team member. We're here to help you. We always start with the end of mind and work our way backwards and structure it. I think if you work with a competent mortgage professional, they should be able to tell you you can afford up to X amount of dollar in loan or you know, you need to do do this one item, pay this debt off, accumulate a little bit more cash, borrow on the HELOC because your your liquidity is light. 
And so I would look at the mortgage professional as a team member, someone to help you guide to achieve the goal that you want to achieve. Yes. And that's a very important distinction because it isn't, they're not somebody to guide you through a transaction. They are helping you manage your borrowing power. And if you're going to be a consistent, persistent real estate investor, you're going to be using your borrowing power over and over and over again. And you need to recharge it. You need to maintain it just like you would a car or any other valuable asset. And, you know, having come out of the business, I knew the way people acted. They, they would say, okay, this is what my credit is based on this snapshot today. I can do X or Y. And if I can't, then I just wait till the lending world changes to allow me to do what I want to do. And what I'm suggesting to you is you can actually proactively change your credit profile so you can go do the things you want to do, but you're going to need a guide. You know, what's interesting is uh, we've talked about HELOC several times today. And let's say a guy has a, say, a $50,000 HELOC that's sitting there with a zero balance, but he's got $50,000 worth of credit out there on credit cards that are in the, say, upper teens. Right. Well, hey, if you're getting 3.9% on a HELOC, as well as not getting or getting the tax deductibility out of that HELOC, wouldn't it make sense to go ahead and pay off that whole debt and put it on a HELOC? That'll relieve the uh, the, the back end pressure on the ratios, not to mention your out of pocket dollars. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the key here is to make sure you're talking to your professional before you make that move. Don't just take that twenty thousand and pay off that car loan. Certainly don't go out and buy a new car while you're negotiating for a purchase on a property, which for whatever reason people always do. Make sure you bring your lender into the loop. And, and in this case, the team part is huge, Michael. I'm glad you talked about that because sometimes people feel like, well, you know, my lender, they're, they're working for the bank. Your lender is working for you. They are absolutely working for the investor, the bank, making sure that all the rules and guidelines are followed. They want to stay licensed. They want to stay in business. But if you'll be up forthcoming with your situation, they will be able to guide you through to, one, if you're even credit worthy at this time, and if not, what you can do about it. And two, what are the best kind of loan programs for your specific situation? Real estate is a team sport. It really is. I think having competent commercial or residential brokers help you find the properties you want, having a good competent mortgage broker, having a good title company, having a good attorney, all those are your team members. You don't need to know everything about everything. You just need to know where to go to get their specific expertise, let them do their job and help guide you along to get to the result that you want, which is a buying a property profitable investment property. Return to the Real Estate Guys radio program. It's Ask the Lenders this week. More when we come back from Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Robert Helms. Need help with your real estate investment portfolio? Check out the resources page at realestateguysradio.com. When the housing market crashed in 2008, San Antonio led the way in appreciation and cash flow. Would you like to have a strong, reliable investment that performs in both up and down markets? Cash flow is the key to successful investing and we have tons of positive cash flow properties for our ATW investors. Come see why the Milken Institute rated San Antonio the number one economy in the United States and why San Antonio is the only major city in the country to have a AAA bond rating. ATW Investments can teach you strategies for building strong, secure wealth with investments starting at $5,000. ATW's patented, proven, and powerful system will do all the hard work for you. ATW is where the perfect market meets the perfect strategy and produces the perfect results in your portfolio. To get started, go to the resource section of the Real Estate Guys website or email us at contact at atw-investments.com. Memphis is famous for being the home of the king of rock and roll, but it's also the king of cash flow. If you're looking for affordable cash flow properties, it's hard to beat Memphis. Get your portfolio rocking and more cash flowing your way by calling Terry Kerr at Mid-South Home Buyers. Terry's the king of turnkey properties. Contact Terry through the resource section at realestateguysradio.com. And be sure to order Terry's tips for turnkey rental property investing report. It's free. Just send your request to turnkey at realestateguysradio.com. Hi, this is Anthony Mercurio from Hotel Impossible, and you're listening to The Real Estate Guys. 
Welcome back to the Real Estate Guys radio program. Thanks for tuning in to the show. If you've ever thought about doing bigger deals using other people's money, come on out to the Secrets of Successful Syndication, which will happen right here in Dallas in August. We'll be back in this beautiful part of the world, August 21st, 22nd. It's a wonderful two-day event. Ken McElroy, Rich Dad Advisor for Real Estate, will be there. Michael Becker will be there talking about commercial mortgages. And uh, not only that, he does a lot of syndication himself. So you'll learn all about that when you come out to the event. All the details on our website at realestateguysradio.com. This next question comes from Sean in Las Vegas, Nevada. He says, I graduated from college a year and a half ago, and I want to buy either a home to live in or an investment property. I have both a job and an online marketing business, so I have good income and some money saved up for a down payment. My credit score is about 680. My goal is to buy a home to live in, then rent out some rooms, and I want to buy one to two investment properties a year for the next three to five years. All right, good goals. Here are my questions. Number one, should I buy a home to live in before I buy a rental property, or will that make me ineligible for any first-time buyer loans? I'm assuming that means if you bought the rental property first, you couldn't get first-time buyer programs. So let's talk about that part first, Graham. If he's looking to, he could buy a rental property and continue to rent wherever he rents, or he might buy a home and rent out rooms. Is that make a difference from the loan standpoint? Yeah, if he doesn't have any uh, loans on his balance sheet for the last three years, he is considered a first-time homebuyer. And there are a lot of first-time homebuyer programs out there, which has a lot of incentives, primarily the down payment, okay? The rates are pretty much going to be the same, regardless if you put 3% down or Fannie Mae or FHA world of 3.5% down. Fannie just brought back their 3% down program. They have community uh, reinvestment programs out there that have some additional down pay assistance. So there's all kinds of programs for the owner-occupied, more so than the investor. And and first-time owner-occupied Exactly, so. first-time owner. The investors, they don't, there's not a lot of incentives out there. I mean, it is what it is. It's 20% down. You know, that's, it, there's no incentives. Next, he says, if I buy a home first and rent some rooms out, can I count the money I get from my roommates towards buying investment properties? As long as he puts it on his tax returns, he can do it all day long. All right, good stuff. So that income is going to count. And finally, and this is just a good question in general, what other advice can you give me as a young guy just getting started? I want to get a home and eight to 10 rental properties in the next five years. I would probably say spend your money wisely, save as much money as you possibly can. Because as the old saying, it takes money to make money, especially in today's lending world for single family residents, you still have to have 20% down. And if he wants to get aggressive with, you know, buying two a year, well, he's got to have the down payment. So my, my best recommendation to him, not knowing what his income level is, is to put as much money aside and not spend, you know, uh, a lot of money on expensive cars and so forth. All right. Well, gentlemen, we certainly appreciate your input. These are great questions and ones we wouldn't have been able to answer anywhere near as well. And just keep in mind, guys and gals, that the landscape changes for mortgages all the time. Just this weekend, we heard Graham explain to us a couple of new programs that weren't in existence last week. So things are always changing. Uh, this show is only current the minute it comes out. And uh, make sure you're uh, staying plugged in to your mortgage professionals. Uh, if you'd like to reach Graham or Michael and learn more about what they do, if you go to our website at realestateguysradio.com under our resource network, you'll be able to find uh, both of these gentlemen. And uh, Michael Becker is uh, specializing, of course, in multifamily. His company also does a lot of other commercial loans, so he can help you out there. Graham helps uh, primarily investors, certainly uh, owner-occupants. Uh, I know you have that business, but his uh, specialty really has been for a long time uh, helping investors, and uh, we appreciate that. Thanks, guys, for uh, being on the program. Thanks. Appreciate it. Thanks for having us. Next week on the show, we're going to talk about when a hot market is too hot. Should I get out? Should I buy more? Should I double down? That'll be a fun show. Until then, go out and make some equity happen. This episode of the Real Estate Guys Radio Show is brought to you by Paradigm Life. Powerful cash management strategies using life insurance. Learn more at beyourbank.com. Mid-South Home Buyers. Low-cost, turnkey cash flow properties in Memphis, Tennessee. Corporate Direct. Asset protection strategies for real estate investors. From attorney and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton. Find these and other great companies under the Resources tab at realestateguysradio.com. To learn how you can expose your product or service to the Real Estate Guys audience, call 888-489-7723, extension 4. That's 888-489-7723, extension 4. Or use the feedback page at realestateguysradio.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week right here on the Real Estate Guys Radio Show.